Good morning, my name's Rachel. I'll read the second Bible passage. It's from Exodus chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 10. So open up your Bibles, um, reading from the start of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you have to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Rachel. You could keep your Bible open. We'll be uh, working through some of that passage. It's a big one, so we won't cover everything today. Uh, but my name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. And as we begin, I'm going to pray and thank God for that time. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We know that it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, would you be at work in us now through the power of your word, in the power of your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I'll bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. They're interesting verses, aren't they? Have you ever looked at them and considered what is God doing there? Or even taking a step back, have you ever looked at the whole story of Exodus and thought, what is God doing there? Or even more stepping back again, have you ever looked at history and wondered, what is God doing in history? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because we look at history and it seems so chaotic and so random. And so we can wonder, well, what is God up to in history? Think about history with me for a minute. Think about kings for, in particular, kings and queens. Some kings come along, and, or some queens come along, and they're king or queen for a long time. Uh, like this guy, King Louis XIV of France. He was king for 72 years. Or what about our own Queen Elizabeth II? She was queen for 70 years. Some rulers rule for such a long time. But some for just a short time. Like this guy, uh, Louis Antoine, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, he's also French, I asked Michelle, that's how she said you pronounce it, so if that's correct, congratulate her if not, 
that's her fault, but Louis Antoine, do you know how long he was king for? 20 minutes. So he's only king for 20 minutes. And you look at that and it seems so, so chaotic, doesn't it? Some kings and queens rule for 70 years, some for 20 minutes. What is God doing in history? It seems so chaotic, so random. Or what about sicknesses? Sicknesses and kind of diseases, they impact on history perhaps more than anything else. Some sicknesses, some diseases we're able to cure, like polio or like smallpox. We actually wiped smallpox off the face of the planet. Some were able to cure, but others were not able to. Take Alzheimer's, for example. It's a terrible disease. My grandma died of Alzheimer's, and it's a horrible thing, and we just don't have a cure for it. We might look at that and think it, it seems so chaotic, so random in history. Some diseases we can cure, others we can't. Have you ever looked at history and wondered, what is God doing in history? What is God bringing about in history? It seems so chaotic, so random. And here's a question we need to answer, because I mean, it almost goes without saying, but we are in history. I'm in history, you're in history, we are all in history. And in fact, though, we cannot understand history apart from God. We are in history. If we want to understand history, we need to see what God is doing because God holds history in his hands. And so it's a vital question. What is God doing in history? Well, if we want to know the answer to that question, then we have to turn to the Bible because the Bible is extremely interested in telling us what God is doing in history. In fact, did you know that around 43% of the Bible is historical narrative? And that's excluding the Gospels, which are also historical narrative, but also have points of commentary in them. Excluding the Gospels, around 43% of the Bible is telling us what God is doing in history. That's far different to any other religious text, the Quran, the Veda, the Lotus Sutra, none of them have anywhere near that amount of engagement with history. The Bible is interested in telling us what God is doing in history. And in fact, the God of the Bible is a God who is active and purposeful in history. And so if we want to answer the question, what is God doing in history, then we have to look at the Bible. And even within the Bible, there are some passages that are absolutely foundational, absolutely key for understanding everything else. And our passage today is one of them. If I was to have to pick a list of five passages, top five most important passages in the Bible, I think our passage today would be on them. It would be one of my top five. The passage is Exodus 12 and 13, but actually today we're not going to look at most of that. We're actually going to drill down in on just two verses from those chapters. And that's because those two verses capture what the whole two chapters are talking about. The verses we'll look at are Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. And as we do, it tells us the answer to our question. It answers the question for us, what is God doing in history? And this is what it tells us. God is building a people for himself through the exercise of his judgment and his mercy. God is building a people for himself through the exercise of his judgment and his mercy. 
So our passage is about God building a people for himself. Remember, he's already given his promises in Genesis 15, 12, 17. And from then, the rest of Genesis, God kind of builds up his people, takes it from one man into a couple of score by the end of Genesis. We then jump forward a few hundred years to Exodus, where they've gone from a few score to a few hundred thousand. So in one sense, God has built a people for himself. But the problem is that that people is stuck in slavery. And so now, what God does in these chapters is frees his people from slavery. And he does it through the exercise of his judgment. Now remember, we already had some judgment last week. We heard about the first nine plagues. God told Pharaoh over and over again, let my people go. But Pharaoh, like the stubborn mule that he is, refused time and time and time again. And so now what we get is we come to the final terrible plague that God gives. God's final terrifying plan of judgment. Have a look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12 with me. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This final plan This exercising of God's judgment will result in the death of every firstborn. It is a truly horrific thing to think about. There was a story in the news uh, earlier this year, you might have heard of it. It It's about a father who uh, accidentally left his son in the car. So what happened was that the dad had two sons. He went and dropped off his older son at primary school. Then he drove himself home and forgot that his three-year-old son was sitting in the back of his car. So he went inside and started working and only remembered six hours later. So that poor kid had sat in the heat. It's a 35-degree day. When the dad finally remembered, he ran outside and tried to punch in the back windscreen to get his son out. But sadly, it was too late. And it was a a terrible thing. I could uh, barely look at that story without almost tearing up a bit myself. Levi's around the same age. It's just horrific to look at the photos of this poor man sitting there, head in his hand, inconsolable blood running down his hand from where he'd tried to punch in the window. It's a terrible story and terrible to think about the sadness that that man and that family will have for the rest of their lives as their dear son is missing. And that is exactly what every single household in Egypt will experience. Every single household will have that empty seat at birthday dinners. Every single person will experience that moment where they go to say something to their loved one and then remember that they're not there anymore. It is a terrible thing. It is a truly horrifying thing to think about this plan of judgment that God has brought about. And God is very clear that this is judgment. Did you see that? Have a look at verse 12 again. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. It's so clear. This is God's judgment against the enemies of his people and against the gods or the so-called gods of Egypt. Now, maybe you're sitting there and thinking, well, that sounds so extreme. How could a loving God bring about such horrible judgment? And it's a good question. It's an important question. 
But I think the answer to the question is equally important. There's a few things we can say. Firstly, there's a deeper level of reality going on here than just the loss of the firstborn sons, as, as important as that is. See, ultimately, this is a battle between gods. This is a battle between the God of Israel and the so-called gods of Egypt. This is a high-stakes battle, and high-stakes battles have high-stakes consequences. There's high stakes as World War II was, defeating the Nazis and rescuing the Western world from them. As high stakes as that was, this is an even more high stakes battle. This is a battle for cosmic supremacy. And high stakes battles have high stakes consequences. And it is genuinely hard to think of something more high stakes than the lives of your children. Secondly, uh, these are not innocent victims. We've got to remember what happened in Exodus chapter 1, where the Egyptians killed not just the firstborn of the Israelite males, but attempted to kill every single Israelite male. So these are not innocent people sitting there, not deserving of anything. But rather, these are people who are supremely guilty, which means that this is a just judgment against the wickedness of the Egyptians. And finally, even though they did deserve it, God didn't do it straight away. He didn't send Moses to Pharaoh, say, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses, and then God instantly obliterates all of their firstborn. No, 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 God gave Pharaoh nine separate warnings. That's what the first nine plagues are. Now, did you know when you get a speeding ticket, you're allowed to have a warning? You can send an email to them or write a letter to them and say, I've learned my lesson can you give me a warning? And provided you're not that far above it, they will give you a warning. And they'll say, this is your only warning for two years. If you do it again, we won't give you a warning. Now, this is not first-hand experience. I'm sure you'll be glad to know. But that is what Victoria Police will do. They will give you one warning. God is much more generous, though, than Victoria Police. He doesn't give just one warning. He gives nine warnings, nine gradually escalating warnings. They start tamely enough, a, a snake on the ground, a little bit of blood in the water, and then they go up and up and up in severity. And yet Pharaoh ignored them all. And so now we come to this final avoidable blow, God's terrible and terrifying judgment, not undeserved and not without warning. What is God doing in history? God is building a people through the exercising of his judgment. Now, some people might say, well, that God of judgment is a really primitive thing. That's what you see in the Old Testament. But Jesus came along to tell us what God is actually like, that God is a loving, heavenly Father. But if that's what we're, we're thinking, well, what do we make of these words? The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, what about this? Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is Jesus again. See, here's an interesting stat for you. Of all the people in the New Testament, Jesus talks about God's judgment the most and the most clearly. See, judgment is not just an Old Testament thing. It is an all of history thing. 
Now, of course, if you want to believe in a God who wouldn't hurt a fly, then you're allowed to. That's your privilege. You're welcome to if you'd like. But that is not the God of the Bible. And it's not the God of Jesus. It's an idol. The God of the Bible is dangerous because the God of the Bible is all about building a people through the exercise of his judgment. And things have not changed in the last 4,000 years. See, the judgment here is shocking. The death of a firstborn is a terrible, terrifying, horrible thing. And it might disturb us deeply. In fact, it did disturb me deeply thinking about Levi. But I promise you this. It is not a more terrible thing than the fate that awaits those who reject God today. That judgment isn't all that God's doing in history because God is also building a people for himself through the exercise of his mercy. That's what we see in verse 13. For his people, God offers a way out. In fact, in the first part of chapter 12, God describes what the people are to do. They're to get a one-year-old male lamb without defect. They're to set the lamb aside for four days so they can kind of double check and triple check and quadruple check that there's no blemish on the lamb. Then on the 14th, of the day, 14th, month of the day, the 14th day of the month, they're to kill the lamb and then devour him in a delicious barbecue. Uh, my mouth was almost watering as I was reading that. But sounds good, doesn't it? But you know what? Did you see what else they're meant to do as well as eat the lamb? What are they meant to do? They're to take the blood and put it on the doorpost. What's that all about? Well, verse 13 tells us, have a look at that, chapter 12, verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the point of the blood is to make clear that turning aside God's judgment requires blood. It demands blood. Blood is the payment price, the blood of the spotless lamb. When God sees the blood, his judgment and his wrath will pass over the Israelites and will not touch them. But did you notice the language it uses? It says it's a sign for them, or sign for you, but it means a sign for them. See, it's not a sign for God, because God doesn't need the blood on the doorpost to know who are his people, and to know who has done what he's commanded them to do. It's not like God is a kid on Easter Sunday looking for Easter eggs where he's kind of stooping down and looking around, oh, there's a bloodhouse, or oh, there's a bloodhouse, there's one. Now, God doesn't need that. God knows who belongs to him. So it's not a sign for God, it's a sign for the people. When they look at the blood on the doorpost, it will remind them that blood is the price needed to turn aside God's judgment. And they actually do need it because they are no less sinful than the Egyptians. Because did you notice what our passage says about why God will spare them? Have a look at verse 13 again. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are that you are innocent and not deserving of judgment. Is that what it says? What about this? The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, that you are righteous and holy, sinless and perfect. What about that? It doesn't say that at all, does it? Because, of course, the people aren't innocent. In fact, in Ezekiel 20, another book in the Old Testament, we're told that the Israelites, when they were in Egypt, 
were worshipping the gods of the Egyptians. That's what we're told. They are equally as deserving of God's judgment as the Egyptians. And that is why it simply says the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The point is this. It is not about the people inside the house, but rather about the blood on the outside of the house. The blood on the outside of the house is a visible sign to the people that God is going to show them mercy. Not because it's deserved, not because those inside are somehow better than the Egyptians, not because those inside the house are good people, but simply because they belong to God. And so God will show them mercy. What is God doing in history? God is building a people for himself through the exercising of his mercy. And do you know what? That is still what God is doing today. Because just like the Israelites, we are sinful. Just like them, we don't honor God how we should. Just like them, we get caught up and end up worshiping the cultural idols of our time. Money, health, approval of others. And so we too deserve judgment. Which means that if we want to be spared that, we too need the blood price for our sin. But of course, we've got a bit of a problem with if that's the case. Because this here was a one-off event. So what are we to do? How are we to turn aside God's wrathful judgment? Well, that's where the New Testament sheds light for us because in the New Testament, Jesus deliberately and specifically links himself with the Passover. Now, you might know this already, but Jesus was actually crucified at the time of the Passover festival and the Last Supper was Jesus' Passover meal. Now, was that a coincidence? Not at all. In fact, the reason he came to Jerusalem that final time wasn't just to celebrate the Passover, though it was that as well, but wasn't just to celebrate the Passover, but rather it was to become our Passover. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says this, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And we even see that in Jesus' last supper, in his meal. Uh, This is what we read. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His flesh is the blood, his flesh is the the bread, and the blood is the wine. But did you notice what's missing? The lamb. I mean, the lamb was the whole point of the feast. So why is the lamb missing? Is Jesus just a vegetarian? It's because Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the perfect, spotless lamb of God. And his death, his blood, is what turns aside God's judgment. And as this lamb of God, Jesus is both the same and different to the Passover lamb. So a few ways in which Jesus is the same. Uh, So of course they're both lambs. The lamb is a literal, physical lamb. But remember what John the Baptist calls Jesus when he sees him? In John 1, he calls him the lamb of God. 
Uh, Both lambs also die, their blood is shed. The lamb is killed at the time of the Passover. Jesus was shed on the cross. And for both of them, their blood turns aside God's judgment. For the lamb, it turns aside God's judgment at the Passover, but Jesus turns aside God's judgment against sinners. So do you see here, actually, the Passover lamb and Jesus, the lamb of God, actually quite similar. But of course, they're also a little bit different. What we see with the Passover Passover lamb is that it was just a sign. Its death didn't actually achieve anything. It was just a sign, just a symbol, other than to show they trusted God. But the blood of Jesus actually deals with sin. It is efficient and effective in washing away our sin. And not just once. See, the thing about the Passover lamb was this was a one-off, one-off turning aside. But Jesus' blood is a once and for all washing. It was and is permanent. Anyone who has been washed by the blood of Jesus is forever forgiven of their sins, now and forever. And so, do you see how much better the Lamb of God is? And of course, it was at the cross where the Lamb of God was killed for us. And that's why as Christians, our whole faith revolves around the cross. It's on the cross that Jesus paid the blood price demanded by our sin to turn aside God's judgment. And so in our two verses, in verse 12, we see a great act of judgment. And in verse 13, a great act of mercy. But at the cross, we see them both. God's judgment and God's mercy meet. Now, there there are countless great Christian songs about this that capture so well uh, and describe it so well. But here's a good one. I've got out our um, old Red Rejoice hymn book. So some of you might be familiar with uh, these, these books. We haven't used them in quite a while, but they are great. They've got some wonderful hymns in them. And this is what hymn number 210 says. I'll put the words up there for you. This is what it says. It paints it so beautifully. It says this. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within the weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. O safe and happy shelter, a refuge tried and sweet, a trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. And that is the cross, the place where God's judgment and justice meets God's mercy and God's love. And that is why the cross is the culmination of history. And so coming back to our question from the start, what is God doing in history? Well, I hope you know the answer now from our passage. God is building a people for himself through the exercise of his judgment and his mercy. That's what he's done throughout all of history and it's what he's still doing today. Right throughout history and even today, we see God's mercy. In fact, we saw it this week with that uh, story about the bus accident. I don't know if you've followed that one. A truck sadly hit a, a school bus that went off the road and terrible tragedy, many kids injured. But even in the midst of that, we see God's mercy. We see God's mercy that none of them died. We see God's mercy in the provision of uh, rescue workers who risk their own lives to get the kids out. We see God's mercy 
by the provision of those surgeons and those doctors who wouldn't stop operating until all of the children were taken care of, who just kept going again and again and again. Even in the midst of such tragedy, we see God's mercy at work. And history is filled with that. God's acts of mercy that give us a little glimpse of God's mercy shown on the cross. But history is also filled with God's acts of judgment. Natural disasters like tornadoes and volcanoes, or societal disasters like the collapse of a nation or financial ruin like the GFC, or health disasters like diseases and plagues. History is filled with God's acts of judgment. Now, of course, we do want to be careful pointing to specific events and saying that they are direct acts of judgment against individuals. Luke 13 warns against that. Of course, they're not against individuals. But they are acts of judgment against the world in general. A helpful way to think about it, I think, is thinking of them as pictures of judgment. They are pictures that point to the final time of judgment when Christ will return and judge the world. See, when we look at natural disasters or plagues, it's a small taste of what the final judgment will be. And what that actually means is that God's acts of judgment are actually acts of mercy. Why? Because it is merciful of God to give us these small glimpses, a mini picture, these warnings of the judgment to come so that when we see them, we can repent and turn to Him. And in so doing, we might be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, given at the cross, the place where God's judgment and mercy meet. And for any who are washed by the blood of the Lamb, spared God's judgment by His mercy, then we actually have an incredible privilege. Do you know what it is? That we belong to God. We see that in our passage at the start of chapter 13. Uh, This is what God says. He says, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn of offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. See, God tells the Israelites that the firstborn belongs to him. He has rescued them, and so they are his. Through the exercising of his judgment and mercy, God is building himself a people. And the implication, therefore, of the cross is that you have been redeemed. You have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, and so you belong to God. What difference does that make? Well, that simple truth can transform our lives. It gives us, firstly, a profound sense of self-worth. It gives us a a profound sense of self-worth because it means we belong to the creator of all things. The one who made all things, we belong to him and he values us. It also gives us uh, order in our lives. We are first and foremost gods, which means that all of our other roles in life might be seen, therefore, in light of that. Uh, You may be a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher, but you are first and foremost gods. You may be a father or mother, sister or brother, friend or colleague, but you are first and foremost God's. And so how you live in each of those other roles will be shaped by your primary relationship to God as someone who belongs to Him. And it is so important to remember this because we so easily forget 
Uh, it's easy to think of ourselves primarily in terms of our other kinds of belongings. We belong to our family, we belong among our colleagues at work, we belong in our church family. And they're all true, of course. Yet the primary, defining, transformational belonging that the Bible offers is that we belong to God. And what God wants is that we'd have a vital awareness of that. See, everything that's happening in history and today is designed to remind you that you belong to God. And so live accordingly. Because knowing this and living accordingly brings great honor and glory to God. See, what's God's purpose today and in history? It is ultimately to glorify himself by building a people who have a vital awareness of who they are, his people, redeemed by his judgment and his mercy. I'm going to pray and thank God for that, please. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that at the Passover, we're reminded of the, uh, the significance of sin and rebellion against you. We're reminded that your judgment against sin is terrifying and terrible. Would you be reminding us that we are no better than the Egyptians, just like the Israelites were no better? That we too are deserving of your judgment. But we thank you that that's not all there is to say about it. We thank you that you are a gracious and generous God and that you are merciful and loving. We thank you that how we see in this passage the outpouring of your mercy shown through the Passover lamb. We thank you though that we have something far better, something and someone far better. We thank you for Christ, the lamb of God, who doesn't just save us from judgment one time, but washes us clean of sin, sparing us and giving us eternal life, belonging to you, serving you and honoring you. We thank you that that's what you're doing in history. Would you continue to do that, we ask, and would you continue to remind us that we belong to you above everything else. We are your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.